0: Because you're confused, you start imitating them. Like the very first talk I ever gave in my life was a TEDx talk in front of 2,600 people. And I got on that stage and I sounded exactly like the woman who trained me. And she's awesome, but I am a very poor imitation of her.
1: On today's episode, I get to have a conversation with a best-selling author of the award-winning book, Less* someone who has had an amazing 25-year career where she served as a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House. She has held vice president roles, senior VP roles. She had her own firm that she ran before she sold. Now she is a sought-after motivational keynote speaker. Laura Gaston Otten is someone who pulls no punches whatsoever and we have a great conversation we talk about how she went from law school to the campaign office at bill clinton's white house we talk about how someone tried to steal her work and how by not listening to that person who even though had so much power over her led to her getting her first paying job we talk about how failure is not final but instead it's a fulcrum which is quite interesting The three keys of running a successful business, impact, flexibility, and profit, and how you cannot have or do all three at the same time, ego and worth, and how that cost her a five-year journey when she was trying to sell her business, having way too many people in your corner, and being over-gurued, which I love that terminology that she used, being a role model to your kids, how that led to having a speaking career, the three things that hold us back, how she went from running taken six weeks to run one mile to now she's run five marathons and she started at age of 39 why fail is a probability not a possibility and why that's actually important and we just delve into what leadership really means it's a great conversation this is everyday leadership with laura gasner otten let's get into it laura it's a pleasure to have you on the show today
0: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: It's an absolute pleasure. I mean, we, we spoke for a little what, two years ago? We were still having a, having mm-hmm. a first conversation after that. I was like, I'm gonna get Laura the show. <laughs> I'm like I, just need to, I need to make this need to make this happen and
0: it's very funny because the last couple of years have been like a blur right the pandemic time it's like dog years and when you reached out to me and invite me on the show I'm like didn't I didn't we do that did we not do that and I was like I can't believe we didn't do this already so I'm so glad to finally be here
1: so let's go way back way back to a younger Laura starting out teenagers what was that like for you because I was interested to see what the, the vision and the dream was there to where you are right now.
0: Yeah, the what was that like for me? It was awkward. It was super awkward. I was one of those kids who didn't really fit anywhere. I was smart, but I wanted to be pretty. I w- like you know, I was like I was interesting enough, but I wasn't cool. I was popular enough, but I wasn't like in the in crowd. I was kind of like I didn't have my own circle. But I was like on the edges of other people's circles. And I kept thinking that like, well, when I get to college, I'll fit in and it'll be great. And then I got to college and it was also awkward. And it was like, I kept trying to like find my place in the world. And it wasn't until I got older that I figured out who I really was. But I always say that I was born the the second daughter to a father who really wanted a son. And so I just like, you know, I was raised as a tomboy. I was an absolute nerd. I went to computer sleepaway camp when I was 13 years old. I was one of, I think, three girls in the entire camp and I still didn't kiss a boy till I went to college. I mean, it just, you know, awkward. It was awkward. But I always had this desire to solve problems and, you know, change the world and do big things. And it really wasn't until I got to law school and fell on my face, realizing that law school was absolutely not the right place for me, that I, Found what would be the right place for me, and it was in political campaigns with a whole bunch of other misfit toys that never quite fit wherever they were, but that were so passionate about that were what they were doing, and were excited to just drop everything and change their lives and eat cold pizza and sleep on high school, you know, buses like going, you know, to all sorts of random places and just like campaign because they just loved, loved, loved the idealism, and that's really where I finally found my my people.
1: What was it around law school that made you pursue that in the first place before that changed?
0: So I grew up during an era where there were a lot of like legal dramas on television, right? There was like LA law and there was Ally McBeal and they all just seemed really glamorous. Yeah. They seemed really interesting. And At the same time, there was the Iran um, hostage crisis where the Iranians had taken some United States citizens on an airplane and were holding them hostage. And Jimmy Carter was president and he wasn't able to get them free. And I was just like... I had been fed this line that like the United States is the greatest nation on earth, and I was like, how can we not get our citizens free if we're the greatest nation on earth? It like it enraged me in this way that we were like watching children starving in Ethiopia, and the AIDS crisis was just starting up, and and we weren't taking care of our own people, and we couldn't take care of anybody else, and it was like it's just nonsense. Like we need to solve these problems, and so I thought the people who solve problems must be the politicians. I'm going to run for office, and so I at the time like the people. People who were in office were lawyers. So I was like, I guess I'll go to law school. That'll be my path. And then I got to law school and on that very first day. You know, when you watch those legal movies and there's always that kid who gets called on on the very first day, the very first day in the very first class and they get like asked question after question after question after question until they just like fall apart, like in a pile of salt and tears. And they just like, that was me. I was that kid. And I was just like, I don't belong here. Like this isn't the place for me. And I did what, most young people do when they're in a situation that's terrible for them, which is that they date somebody who's also terrible for them. And so I joke around that I dated the world's worst boyfriend and the world's worst boyfriend offered to put my bike in the back of his car because it was raining. He's like, I'll just put your bike in the back of my IROC Z, which tells you everything you need to know about this guy. It was like one of those like, you know, muscle car Camaro type things. I'll put your bike in the back of my IROC Z, but I want to stop at this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. And so we went to this little tiny campaign office in this little tiny town where I was going to law school, and there was a little TV. And at the time, then Governor Bill Clinton was talking about this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition. And I was like, oh, change the world while you change yourself? That makes so much sense. We should do that. And so I dropped out of law school and I joined his campaign. And, you know, Yada, yada, yada. Right. I ended up in the White House and I can tell you that whole long story. But yeah, just like that, just like that. I was like, I'd, I'd spent the previous 21 years in this like organ failure rejection moment of like, I don't belong here. I don't belong there. This isn't working. It's not right for me. And I had that moment and I heard that vision and I was just like a lightning bolt like that. It was the first thing in my life that just made so much sense. I couldn't not do it.
1: Wow. To be able to hear those kind of words and for them to resonate with you so much, to be able to make that immediate action, that sounds like a really powerful shift. And when you did step into the White House and step into politics, did you feel like you were able to make the change that you wanted to make and to start to, I guess, achieve some of those justice hopes that it sounds like you had along that way?
0: No, absolutely not. I was getting the coffee for the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee. I mean, I was a complete and total peon. And it was very funny because, you know, I volunteered on the campaign and we were able to get a lot of people to show up in this tiny little town. And that got the attention of the National Campaign Office. And the National Campaign Office were like, who are those volunteers in that tiny podunk town? We should hire them on staff. And hiring us on staff meant that they paid us all the ramen soup we could eat and all the idealism we (laughs) could stomach. So, you know, it wasn't like glamorous. I met somebody on that campaign who ended up running the volunteer office for the White House. And so on the very first day, right after the inauguration, he called me up and he was like, Laura, what are you doing right now? And I was like, I don't know. I'm sitting around. He's like, come to the White House. I have a volunteer job for you. So I started volunteering and I started volunteering. And eventually, after six weeks of volunteering, literally doing data entry, he says to me, basically the chief of staff of the office where I was working, had kind of given me the indication that I was probably going to just be volunteering forever, that there weren't a lot of jobs. And the next day, the CEO, the executive director of the office came up to me and he was like, hey, you've been volunteering here. It looks like you do good work. You're working hard. Would you mind doing a research project for me? Now, remember, I was six weeks into volunteering and my parents had said to me when I told them I was dropping out of law school, we'll give you six months. Either you get a paid job or you come back and finish law school. So I was incentivized to get a paid job, right? I did not want to go back to law school. So the head of the office comes up to me and says, listen, it occurs to me that John F. Kennedy was incredibly successful with the Peace Corps from the minute he announced it. Whereas Lyndon Baines Johnson was a failure for the war on poverty from before it even like came off the policy desk. I want to know why, because I don't want that to happen to us. Okay, small question, right? So he he hands me this, re- he's like, would you be interested in doing this research project? And I said, yes. And as I'm walking out the door, the chief of staff comes up to me and says, listen, the executive director is very, very busy. He's not gonna have time to read that whole report. Why don't you give it to me? I'll summarize it and I'll just give him the cover memo. And I said, okay. And as I'm walking out the door to go start doing the research, another woman who worked in the office came up to me and she said, you, you know what's happening here, right? And I was like, yes, maybe. No. <laughs> no. And she's like, he's going to steal your work. And I was like, yeah, but okay, what can I do? Like, I'm a volunteer. Like, he's got me dead to rights. There's nothing that I can do. And she's like, yes, there is. You can go do that work that he wants in 48 hours And you can give it to him in 24 hours and give it to the chief of staff and say, here you go. You can summarize it, but then wait for the executive director to walk out the door that night and hand him another copy and say your chief of staff is so generously going to uh, summarize this for you. But I thought you might like some of the raw data. And so I did. And then I went home and I cried into my ramen soup about the job that I was not going to get that I even, didn't even already have. Right. Like I was just like, I've totally screwed the pooch. This is it. I'm going home. I have to go back to law school. This is going to be the worst. I can't believe it. I, why did I do that? I should have just like towed the line. And literally the next day, the chief of staff walks in and says, yeah, so um, I've been told to put you on salary. And the lowest possible salary I can give you is twenty two thousand seven hundred and seventeen dollars a year. So please sign here. He was clearly none too pleased (laughs) that I did that. However, I will say it did work and I did get paid. I got a job. That's how I got my job in the White House. Wow. Was spit and polish and a whole lot of moxie.
1: How did you decide who to listen to? Because you got this guy telling you one thing. You got another woman telling you something different, a different way of approach. So how did you make that decision?
0: Well, at the time, the guy comes up to me and he's like six foot four and he's wearing a very slick suit and he's got his hair, you know, gelled back and he sort of leans on me just a little too hard with his little too muscular shoulder. It was like it felt very bullying, right? It felt very much like he was in a position of power and he was letting me know that I needed to like do the thing for him. And he knew that I had no power in that situation. And it was very clear like in my gut that it just didn't feel right. I couldn't understand why it was wrong, but it was very clear that it didn't feel right. And then when she came up to me, it was more of a like, did you, do you understand? Do you see that? Like she was clearly trying to help me understand the politics of what was going on. She was trying to help me understand the nuance of what was going on. She was trying to help me understand the landscape of what was going on. And it was clear that I was like, doe-eyed, you know, like fresh out of the womb. Like I clearly had no clue. And not even that, I walked into the office the very first day to volunteer and all of the like pretty young things, like the young and hungries, the like bright young, you know, prep school kids were all sitting there and their fancy clothes with their nice, you know, well-worn briefcases. And they were like flipping through the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times, and they were highlighting things and they were taking notes and they were writing a policy proposals. And I was sitting there literally in my mother's suit, literally in my mother's 1980s suit with the big giant shoulder pads. And I had my very fancy briefcase I got for graduation from college that had never been used at all. And I was like looking around like, what are they writing on their notepads? Like, I don't have any ideas. I don't know what to do. So I so like, I was so ill prepared. And what everybody tells you in that moment is like, you got to fake it till you make it. And the truth is I did that. Like I sat there trying to fake it and I sat there trying to like write notes and pretend to read the newspaper and look really busy. And the truth is that what happened is I missed all of the nuance. I missed the landscape. I missed the politics. I missed what was happening around me because I was so busy trying to fake it that I forgot to actually learn how to make it. And so when she pulled me aside and was like, um... Can I help you here? Do you just, like, she didn't say, this is what you have to do. She said, do you see what happened? Can I explain to you the situation? And then when she did, it was very clear that the offer that she gave me of what to do was the only available choice.
1: That line you just said right now, something else, so often you can fake it that you forget how to make it. Really, really resonate actually, because there's a lot there. If we take the time to really be observant, we can start to identify and start to really see what's at play here. When you got your head down and you're, and you're thinking and you're trying to be like everyone else, you miss all of that. And it takes someone sometimes to speak into you, but it also takes you to listen. Because she could have told you all of that. And you could be like, yeah, I'm going to listen to you. I'm just going to carry and do what I was going to do. Or this guy has so much more power than me. I'm going to go with him. So you also had to listen and then deal with that whole process. But it's amazing what happens when you do that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think the other thing about fake it till you make it, which makes it terrible advice, is that so often you're busy faking it and then you do make it, but you're so busy faking it that you don't even know if it's the thing that you want to make it. And then you get there and then you've got, you know, golden handcuffs. You're stuck. You're trapped. You know, you've got the nicer salary. You've got the nicer house. You've got the nicer car. And then you need to keep making more money to buy even the nicer house and the nicer club membership and all the things. And I think in, until we allow ourselves to be authentic and to fail and to learn and to grow and to iterate and to innovate and to change. We don't actually know if we want to make it in the thing that we're so busy faking it. So, you know, I just think it's terrible advice.
1: Have you always been comfortable with failure? Or is that something that you have to learn over the, over the time?
0: No, I don't. If you find me, somebody tells me that they're com- they've always been comfortable with failure and I'll show you a liar. I mean, that's just absolutely not. You know, I was giving this talk as I mentioned before, we started recording to 5,000 people uh, this weekend. And there's a part of the talk where I talk about how failure is not finale. It's fulcrum, right? It's a place where you learn and you grow and you change and you iterate and you innovate. And I normally at that point say, like, think about it. Like when we're children, we have to learn pre-algebra and you get pre-algebra and it's time for algebra. And then you finally get algebra and it's time for geometry and you get geometry and it's time for trigonometry and trigonometry. Hold the phone. Here comes Calculus. So like you learn that failure and struggle and learning is part of the process. But as adults, we get paid because we showed competency in something. And then we're like, if I step to the right, I might mess up and get fired. If I step to the left, I might mess up and get fired. So I'm gonna stay here comfortably in the middle. But instead of telling the story that way, I like looked at this audience who was like rocking and rolling and partying, right? And I was like, think about your favorite stories that you love to tell at a party. The ones you love to tell when you're tailgating, the ones you love to tell when you're hanging out, you know, drinking some beers with friends. Are they about your most amazing, spectacular victories where you crushed it? No, they're about where you yard sailed, where you totally fell apart, where everything was awful and you hit rock bottom. And what makes it a good story is not that you rose but it was that you hit rock bottom and you rose from there right like we just saw the story about rising and so like failure is actually awesome it's super great it's fun it's you know in hindsight obviously but like we love to talk about failure in hindsight and here's the thing we've survived all of our bad days so far so like you know you're going to survive the failure the question isn't whether you're going to fail or not the question is whether you're going to learn from the failure and i think that takes Time. I'm 51 years old. Like, it's taken time to get older and wiser and know that every time I, you know, yard sale, I can pick myself back up and I can keep walking and, you know, like, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Some of those failures are going to be harder and, you know, bigger setbacks than others, but I'm still here. Right. Like, and it's very funny because I, the very first time I ever gave a talk on this topic, I was like, failure is not finale. And then I looked at stage left and there was literally an astronaut sitting in stage left. And I was like, except for you, (laughs) sir. (laughs) But for the rest of us, right? So it's like, you know, like unless you're doing like open heart surgery or on a spacewalk, like the truth is failure is just an experiment that hasn't worked yet, right? It's not... The end. It's not finale. It's just that fulcrum point. And you have to choose whether on that fulcrum point you tilt forward or you tilt backwards.
1: So, what is one of your biggest, let's call it growth lesson, failure lessons that you've had?
0: When I was selling my last business, I started an executive search firm having worked at uh, a very large inter- international search firm. And while I was there, I'd had this moment where I realized that. I thought the work could be done differently. Maybe with more integrity, more authenticity, more profits for us, less costs for our clients and I I'd had this notion of how we could do the work in a way that served our clients better. And I walked into my boss's office and I was like, there's a better way. And he was like, there's the door. So I had this like Jerry Maguire moment where I like took my little manifesto and the fish and, you know, walked out the door. So I started my own search firm and I started that firm with the idea that I wanted to put my clients first. I wanted to put impact in the world first, personal flexibility and freedom second as an entrepreneur, and then profits would follow, right? I think as an entrepreneur, you can make a decision. You basically have three things, impact flexibility, and profits. And you can make your decisions based on two of those variables, not all three, but you get to pick two, right? Impact, flexibility, and profits. If you do the first two right, the third will always come, but you have to figure out like what you're leading with. And so I started this firm based on, I wanted to make good impact in the world. I'd had young children, so I wanted freedom and flexibility and I knew the profits would come. And so I ran that company for 10 years and I got to a point where I, was ready to do something else. And I turned to the business partner who had come on in about year four, and I said, I'm I, I'm ready to go. And it took me five years to exit that company, to sell that company to the women who helped me build it. Five years. And uh, the failure in that was that I got my ego so wrapped up in the sale. I said, what is this company worth? Let's do a valuation. You need to pay me the money, right? You need to pay me for what I built here. And the valuation came back at a number that was higher than they could afford. And they said, we're not going to do it. And we might just shut this place down and just start another firm. And my ego was so wrapped up in the fact that they were like not valuing me, that they were not valuing what I did, that they didn't want to pay me. They didn't think I was worth it. I'd created, I'd basically set the table for their careers. And I was so upset by that. And what I didn't realize is A, they were terrified. I was the founder and I was leaving. Will the company still be worth that? We don't know. And B, I was running the company for impact and flexibility, not profit, but I was trying to sell it for profit, right? And so it wasn't until I like was basically like just ranting one night to my husband and he was like, you've never run the company for profit. Why are you trying to sell it for profit? Now, I will tell you, we made plenty of profit, right? You do impact right. You do flexibility right. Profit comes but i got my ego so wrapped up in the sale that i thought the number was the was what was success and it wasn't until he said that that i was like you're right what if i sold it for impact and flexibility everything i've ever created in my life whether it's government programs or philanthropic institutions or political action committees or private sector companies still exists to this day and i'm so very proud of that legacy I said, what if I sold it for impact? What if I sold it so that it would still exist? And what if I sold it for flexibility? I want to get out as soon as possible. Will the profits come? And so it took us four years to get to that point in negotiation for us to be able to sell the company. And at the, on the four-year mark, I turned to my business partner. And I said, what if I sell it to you for a dollar? For one U.S. dollar, what if I sell to you for a dollar plus a percentage of profits for the next five years? As long as you guys show a dollar of profit, you're going to give me a percentage of the money that comes in the, of the revenue that comes in the door. And I will tell you, the company still exists. They are doing better than they were even when I worked there. I was able to get out immediately, so I didn't have you know lie all the liability with none of the power. So I had all the flexibility I wanted. And I have made more money from the sale of that company over the course of those five years than I would have if they had paid me out on the check of the valuation that we got on that first day. So that is a moment where I could have been like, I was failing for four years. I couldn't figure out like how to do this until finally a friend said to me, You know, what if you did it this way? And my husband said, You know, what if you took your ego out of it? And it was a combination of those two bits of advice, fulcrum moving forward.
1: Brings up a, a number of thoughts because prior to you having that company and running there and creating that, you had the VP titles and seeing the VP roles and all that kind of stuff. And then you stepped out of that, like you just talked about, it, and you stepped into this. Part of me is curious, has did some of that learning and lessons from those roles follow you into this? And whether you recognize it or not became part of that identity and f- formed some of, part of that ego, especially the way you exited your last organization before you set this one up
0: yeah i mean i think everything that we do i don't know who said it uh maybe it was steve jobs i don't know but it's it's very easy to connect the dots backwards yeah and you know i think everything that we do in every part of our lives creates who we are today Absolutely. It's interesting that you asked that. The old boss from that White House job, the, the director of the office, the one who asked me to do the research project, I ran into him. He'd always been an entrepreneur in his life. And I'd never considered, like, I had parents who worked in jobs at places. Like, they weren't bosses. They weren't entrepreneurs. Like, I never, I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family. And, um, Although immigrant grandparents long ago were entrepreneurs, but my immediate family, I didn't have that. I thought that, you know, you get like a job that has a title, like you're a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, an accountant, like you go work on a place. And I ran into him about five years after starting my last business. And he said to me, he's like, did you always know you were an entrepreneur? And I was like, no. And he's like, well, I did, which I kind of wonder maybe means that he thought I was just unmanageable. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that all the things that we do certainly lead us into who we are today. I mean, what about you? Like, how did you get interested in leadership, in studying people's stories and how they get to who they are today?
1: I think for me, it's always about. I've always had a f- understanding or fascination, should I say, about understanding the the why behind why people do what they do, and that's kind of what's led me down here in. My career, when I did it, when I worked in corporate, even though I worked in roles around IT and finance, different things like that, for me, it was always around the why and that connection. And that eventually led to me stepping out of that corporate world to be able to create my own thing, which was then focused on going into organizations and working with with leaders and doing some work around culture change, because the people are the most important thing. And we are the most complex thing as well. So trying to unravel that and to figure that out and be able to work alongside people I found that gave me joy and that gave me purpose. And that's how I want to show up as opposed to work in environments where I didn't get all of that. And I think I forgot who said the quote there. A lot of times you step out to provide things to people you never had. And that's part of my rationale of what I do what I do now.
0: Oh, I mean, I feel that so deeply. I mean, I wrote I wrote my book Limitless because I needed it. I mean, I had been handed a definition of success by a teacher, by a parent, by a boss, by friends, by television, by Allie McBeal. (laughs) You know, I had been taught, I've been, I've been handed these definitions. And I think we all are, right? Like before you even realize it's happened to you, 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 you get like socialized into this idea of what success should look like. And I was in law school that day looking around, like, why am I here? What am I doing? This isn't, I don't want to, I don't even want to do this. What's going on? So I wrote my book because I needed it. I wished somebody had given it to me. And just the processing, of understanding who I was in this moment turned into that book. My next book is going to be on this idea of wonder hell, this idea of when things are actually working, somebody's buying what you're selling. They're listening to you speak. They're reading what you write. They're, they're inviting you to the table. And you're like, it's amazing. That's incredible. It's so humbling. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's, my hard work opened more doors than I ever thought possible. But also my hard work has teased more doors that I never thought possible. And now I'm anxious and I'm stressed and I'm exhausted and I'm don't know if I want it or should I want it or oh my God, who am I? And is it okay if I want it? It's hell. It's wonderful and it's hell. It's wonder hell. So like I'm writing that book now because that's the book I need. And I think I do think I think we do provide what we need to other people, which also to go back to your earlier question about like whose advice do you take is often why you need to be careful about whose advice you're taking, because sometimes you get a lot of projection as well, right? About what people are telling you you should do. And you're like, well, maybe you should do that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know know if I should do that. Or when you give somebody your big, hairy, audacious goal, and they're like, oh, no, you can't do that. That's too scary. And what they really mean is, I can't do that. I'm too scared. Like, I think we we have to be careful. So, like, you know, my, I, I write a newsletter every Tuesday about what I know to be true that week. And I call it Hello, Tuesday. And I've got, you know, 20,000 people uh, subscribed to it. And the thing I wrote about a couple weeks ago, I talked about this idea of being over gurued right? When you got too many people in your ear, too many people giving you advice and you ask people for advice and you know, they're super smart people, but you get, you know, opinion A from one person, opinion B from another person, opinion C from another person. And you end up leaving not only more confused than ever, but because you're confused, you start imitating them. Like the very first talk I ever gave in my life was a TEDx talk in front of 2,600 people. And I got on that stage and I sounded exactly like the woman who trained me and she's awesome but I am a very poor imitation of her. I can't even watch that talk now. Like that talk that I showed you just before we got on with like 5,000 people screaming and roaring for me. The woman who gave that TEDx on that stage, the poor imitation of that amazing woman would never have gotten an upstanding ovation, let alone probably an ovation if they didn't have to like actually politely clap. So I think we get over gurued We ask lots of people for advice. Hopefully they're good. They're not always good, but we ask lots of people for advice. And then- we don't even know who we are anymore because we get lost in it. And so I think this idea of like, we do the work that we needed, like we study the thing we needed, we provide the service we needed, is really good if you get lucky and you find someone like you who's providing that service, who's actually good and thoughtful and knows what they're doing. But it is a cautionary tale sometimes. It
1: definitely is. And actually speaking about you and your, your talks, the first of a speech you gave um, when you talked about in the past, you said that you you said no to it. And <laughs> and it was like an accidental kind of career that's launched what you're doing right now. But let's go back to that. I was like, well, that story makes me laugh. How is it possible that you actually almost walked away from this?
0: So I was driving my kids home from school. The backstory is that I'd sold that company. I became the chair of a nonprofit organization as one does when, you know, everyone's like, Oh, that super competent human has nothing to do now. Let's recruit her in. So suddenly I was the chair of an arts auction for a local nonprofit an AIDS action, an AIDS research and service um, organization. And I was being introduced to be thanked at this big gala event by a very dear friend of mine. And she's like, and I'd like to thank Laura gassner who dedicates her life to philanthropy. And I went, what? <laughs> and I had a little plate and a cocktail fork in my hand. And I remember I was like, I don't know if I want to stick this fork in her eyes or my <laughs> eyes, but one of us is going down. And... Listen, there's nothing wrong with dedicating your life to philanthropy. That executive search firm that I talked about that I was run, that I founded, and I ran for 15 years and the five-year career search before that worked for philanthropies, nonprofits, universities, non, you know, non-governmental organizations. I have dedicated my life to philanthropy, but it was the way that she described me. And I was standing there in this ball gown and these fancy, you know, earrings that the, you know, that one of the sponsors had lent to the nonprofit. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm a lady who lunches like she just made me a lady who lunches like, ah, what am I going to do? I went home that night and I bought Laura Gassner dot com and I just started blogging about things in the world that were bothering me, like stuff that I just like problems that were not being solved and just my righteous indignation about things. And a woman calls me up who's the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, the one who I said that I was imitating on stage, the one who's amazing. And I was driving my kids home from school. The phone was on speakerphone because, you know, hands free, right? Got to be a good parent. And she said, hey, I saw this blog post you wrote that would make great TEDx would you consider getting on stage and giving one? And I said, hell to the no. I don't want to do that. That is scary. It is terrifying. I've never given a speech before in public. I don't want to do it. I'd rather die, right? Studies show that people, if they rank their biggest fears in life, number one is speaking on stage. Number two is death, right? People would be more like, we are happier to die than get on stage. And also because I'm a good mom, I lecture my kids all the time about doing things that scare them. So my kids from the back seat who were like 13 and 11 at the time were like, Hey, mom, (laughs) don't you tell us we always got to do things that scare us? And don't you tell us if it doesn't challenge us, it doesn't change us? And don't you tell us that life starts on the other side of the fear? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, so what gives? Huh? So six weeks later, I'm on the stage and I'm giving that talk. So the only reason I did it was because I try to be a good parent and give my children these, you know, nonsense, motivational, do hard things. And because I was like trying to role model, having a hands-free call, if I'd been a worse parent, I would not have a speaking career. (laughs) So yeah, so I get on stage and I give that talk and that talk gets some attention and I get hired to fly to Boise, Idaho of all places. To give a speech, a 45-minute speech to a nonprofit conference. And I was like, cool, Boise, Idaho, I've never been there. Why not? Again, I'm unemployed. I got nothing else to do. So they pay me $1,500 and round-trip air tickets. And I didn't know it at the time, but I also got a baseball hat with a little potato on it. So that was pretty cool. And I got a deck of cards that all had potato recipes because, you know, Idaho. And I gave the talk and they handed me a check and I left. And I was like, wait a minute. I've just spent 20 years in a career of consulting where I have to have deliverables. I just went out there and I talked for 45 minutes and somebody handed me money. Tell me more about this job. (laughs) I like it, and so that talk got attention. And you know, and I started getting paid, you know, more and more to get on stage. And when I got put on stage for ten thousand dollars, I looked around and I was like, okay, the people who are making twenty and thirty and forty and fifty all have books. I should get me one of them because I'd written a book years earlier about transitioning from corporate to, you know, nonprofit work. So for people who knew me, they knew me as the nonprofit gal, and you know. Nonprofits don't pay that much money to have you speak. So I'm like, if I want to get paid a lot of money to speak, I need, and I wasn't speaking about nonprofit stuff. I was speaking about solving big problems and leadership and getting out of our own way and success and all of these things. And I was like, if I want to get paid more money, I got to not be the nonprofit gal. So people who knew me that I had a book thought of me the nonprofit gal, and people who didn't know that I had a book didn't think I had a book. So I was like, I got to do that. So that's why I wrote Limitless. And that's what brings me here today. That's my accidental story of becoming a speaker and an author.
1: <laughs> oh, I can. I think why I love that story so much is that can resonate with it as well. And there's something around, and you talked about in the past, being that authentic and being that role model and having to show up in all areas of your life. And a lot of times people are like, oh, I can do that at work, but I'm something completely different. But no, you're not. Who you are, generally speaking, goes all the way throughout. So you modeling that to your kids is what's, what's kind of got you here to keep on doing what you're doing right now. And you talk a lot about that in as well, from that authentic piece and how important that is, because it starts with you being honest with yourself.
0: Look, I mean, the truth is I could get up here and I can be like, yes, I, you know, I worked in another firm for five years and I decided things were not being done well. So I started my own firm. Well, really, like. I started that firm. I had no idea what I was doing. I walked out of that office with my manifesto and my fishbowl, but I also was 11 months pregnant and I had 24 hours of labor in an unplanned C-section the next week. And when I did that, I like six weeks later, I was sitting at my kitchen table with baby in one hand and like puppy, you know, down at my feet. And a friend from, from the White House days calls me up and it was like, so Laura, I heard you had a baby. I mean, it, ew. I, I mean, cool, I guess, but like- whatever I guess if that works for you fine so our executive director just quit we need to find someone else are you still doing search and I was like well yes I am and she was like what are you gonna charge and I was like a hundred dollars an hour and she was like cool send me a contract and i literally with one hand opened my laptop and with one hand like pecked how to write a professional service contract I had no idea what I was doing and then you know the business grew and good work begets more good work and i had to figure out how to be a boss and a manager and a leader and I had to figure out that I was a Great leader, but a terrible manager, and bring somebody in who could manage my people so I could do the leadership thing. Those are two very different skill sets, my friend. And I was very bad at one of them and very good at the other. And rather than working hard to figure out one, I just leaned into the one that I could do. When I left, I sold the firm and I didn't know what I was doing. And then I, you know, I could tell the story like I worked in the White House and I developed a great Rolodex and I went to go get good training and as soon as I had the good training, I started my own firm with a plan in mind and then when I did that for fifteen years, I left and I decided to become a speaker and I wrote this book and I looked for say No, like yeah, you know, I think we fall forward into opportunity by making our own luck and I actually have a chapter in my next book where I talk about how you make your own luck and you know people aren't just born lucky. They're not born confident. If you are. Optimistic. If you say yes to opportunity, if you, even if you're like me, a raging introvert, but you act like an extrovert so that you can like be in the deal flow where people can see you and think about you and you're top of mind, you make your own luck. People call you that. The woman who called me about that search didn't call me because she was thinking about me doing search she got an email that said hey did you hear Laura had a baby Ew, i guess she's a mom now right like the all the like the women who were like we're going to do this for a career i suddenly was top of mind for her and she was like oh yeah we i need her you make your own luck in this life but you don't often make it by planning and executing the plan. You make it by sort of planning in pencil and then also looking around corners and knowing that there's interesting opportunities if you just do interesting things with interesting people and being open to the fact that the most interesting opportunities you find are not the ones you plan for. In fact, I will tell you that in 20 years of doing executive search, the most, in fact, let me rephrase that, the only interesting people that I interviewed for leadership jobs were the ones who had left turns and right turns and U-turns. Nobody who had a straight line was fascinating because they're not experimenting. They're not failing. They're not learning. They're not growing. And it's in those moments of utter despair and uncertainty and self-doubt and anxiety and stress that we're like, what do I really want? What am I really made of? And what can I really do? And does this actually matter to me? Or is it important to someone else? Because you can't be insatiably hungry for someone else's goals. You're not going to get out of the pit of despair by f- achieving someone else's goals. You got to That's where you got to figure out what your own are and if you're going to go after that or not.
1: What have you seen has been one of the biggest barriers to what it sounds like talking about, which is around feeding your curiosity and trying different things? Because... There are so many people who it is, we go down that linear path and that's all we do. That's all we know. That's the right way. And like you just said right now, a lot of the people that you meet, especially in your careers, are the ones who's had the ups and downs and try different things out. Even what your story is talking about, where you'd be like, all right, I'm going to write this pencil. If it works out great, if it doesn't, I'm going to try something new, but at least I'm going to try it out. So what have been some of the things that can stop people from actually leaning more into that, into that element of things?
0: Okay. So there's three lies that we tell ourselves. The first is I'm not ready. I'm not ready. It's not perfect. It's never perfect. You're never going to be ready. Like, has there ever been a thing ever in your life where you're like, it's perfect. Every single thing is perfect. And even if there is, like you built a website, you wrote a book, you did a thing, you press send. And then somebody's like, oh yeah, there's a typo on page four, right? Like, like it's, it's, it is never going to be perfect. And the perfect becomes the enemy of the good. And so we don't move forward because we're so worried about what everyone's going to think about us if it's not perfect. And my favorite quote um, is one from Eleanor Roosevelt. And even picking a favorite Eleanor Roosevelt quote is a hard one. But my favorite quote from her is, we would worry much less about what other people thought about us if we realized how seldomly they did nobody's paying attention. And you know why? Because everyone else is so worried about themselves not being ready, not being perfect, That they're worrying what you're thinking about you. So they just, they're not even paying attention to you because they're so worried that you're paying attention to them. So number one, I'm not ready. Number two, I might fail, right? We already talked about that. They worry that they might fail and they worry that finale is the end. And again, unless you're on a spacewalk, like don't worry about it. Like you are, the one thing I can tell you as sure as I am sitting here right now, you will fail. You will fail. And I think if you don't fail while you're trying, you're not setting your goals high enough, right? Like you should be failing. It should be hard. You should struggle. You should not just follow your passion. Like follow your passion says, as soon as I find my passion, everything's going to be perfect. It'll be fine. All I need to do is follow it and it's great. And then as soon as you get rejected or somebody tells you no or it gets hard, you're like, Well, I guess this must not be my passion. I'll do something else. And your passion should be hard. It should be difficult. It should throw you down and pick you up. And you should have to work for it because isn't your passion worth that? So like, yeah, you're going to fail. And then the third lie we tell ourselves is that people won't like the me who I am when I want to be the me who I want to be. Like if I'm really living my authentic true self, the people around me aren't going to like me. And I have to tell you, this one is not necessarily a lie. Right? Like this one might be true. And it's not because they're bad people. Like there's people around you who love you. They don't want to see you get hurt. When I told my parents I was leaving that big search firm and I was, you know, going to open up my own, when I told them I was leaving law school and joining the presidential campaign, when I told them I was selling my firm, I did these things at 21 at 31 and at and at 45. And each time they're like, no, 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 don't do that. Because the last time I lived in the same house as my parents, I left dirty socks on the floor and put the empty milk jug back in the refrigerator. I didn't have a frontal lobe. So like they don't know who I really am and what I can really do, even though they've seen 30 years of me accomplishing things. They love you and they don't want to see you get hurt. Or maybe they're jealous. You know, those friends that you have that are like, oh, good for you. You know, they're like smiles in the front, kind of knives in the back, and they're looking at your rise. And as you rise, all they see is their own stagnation. So they're jealous, right? So maybe they're them. Or maybe they're the ones who are afraid and they're like, you can't do that because it's scary when really they're thinking, I can't do that because I'm scared. So we have these people in our lives who, yeah, they might not like us when we're the me that we are, want to be the me that we know that we have to be. But the truth is, And this is, you know, so trite, but like if you want to change the people around you, sometimes you need to change the people around you. Like we are being, there's this very, you know, very trite motivational speaker story that they tell about like the oak tree. And if you put an oak seed in a two foot pot, it will grow to be a two foot tree. But if you take the same oak tree and you put it in a giant field, it grows to be a, you know, 200 foot tree. And it's the same seed. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's something wrong with the environment. And so I think we, you will lose people along the way, right? You will lose people along the way who liked you smaller when you get bigger. And that's just going to have to be okay. Because otherwise, what What are you doing? You're like living a smaller life to please them? Why? I
1: think that's one of the biggest realizations that I've seen especially the last two years with the pandemic where it's forced people to actually start to think about some of those relationships and those environments that they've been operating in and how those environments have been the things that have limited them and kept them plain small because even some of that has been around friends who like I know I can do so much more but if I do that I might lose those people I've grown up with and I don't necessarily want to do that but then it's not a healthy relationship. But then having that break for two years where you weren't communicating and being around each other so much, they start to now shine and do certain so things like, oh, wow, it really was that relationship. It really was that person that so calls cares about me. But actually they've kept me small, which goes back to that environment piece you were just talking about.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I my my husband and I went to a memorial service on Sunday and we had that conversation that you always have when you come back from a funeral or a memorial service. And we had the conversation of like, how are we spending our time? Like we all have a certain number of minutes and hours and days on this earth and we don't know how many we have. Right. The memorial we, we came home from was a man who was in his 60s. Very young. He had uh, cancer. It was diagnosed very early, randomly, because he had an accident. And they did blood work in the emergency room and found out that his you know, white blood count was weird. And so they found this cancer that they normally don't find until it's like stage four, get your affairs in order, you know, you got six weeks. So he had eight bonus years. He had eight years to really think about like showing up for the people he loved and the causes he held dear. And he had spent his entire life really doing that. He was a giant of a man we had this conversation on the ride home about like, well, who are we showing up for? Who do we hold dear? What are the causes we love? Are we wasting time scrolling social media? Or, you know, if we've got a friend who lives on the West Coast and they're on the East Coast for a week and, you know, it's a three-hour drive, why don't we just drive down and have dinner with them? Like, why aren't we doing that? Because, you know, what's stopping us? And so I've just, I've spent this week really thinking about, like, who are the loose connections? Like, they're the strong connections that you have who you stay tight with during the pandemic, right? There's like a handful of people that were like in your bubble or that you stay tight with. But there's also like a group of loose connections who, and I'm not talking about like family members, like your great aunt Sally or whatever. I'm talking about the people who, maybe you used to see them at a conference. Maybe you'd, you'd see them a couple times a year at a family trip, but they were the people who made your life better. They made you better, they were additive to your world. And I think the loose connections are really the ones who we've lost over the course of the last couple of years. And so I just, I've been spending time this week making lists of like, who are those loose connections? And in the same way that, you know, you make your own luck and you can manifest things into the world. And we can talk about that if you want, because there is science behind manifestation. In the same way that you can manifest stuff, as I was making that list, I had 10 people on the list and literally three of them randomly posted something on social media about how they were going to be like in Boston where I live or in New York that is just a three-hour drive from me or they're speaking at a conference where I'm speaking two days earlier and I was like, I'm going to cancel that dinner I have with a random friend and I'm going to see that person. I'm going to drive down to New York. I'm going to stay a couple extra days at that conference. Like I'm going to... Really reinvest in those loose connections because that is part of what creates that family, right? That combination of friends and family who see you, who know you, who don't let you settle for mediocrity, who really push you to be the very best that you can be so that you do show up fully as the fullest version of yourself. And I think if I were to give anybody advice coming out of the pandemic about something they should be doing. It's really to think about who are those people, the mentors, the friends, the sort of leagues that you have, right? The combination friend, colleague that you haven't seen in person. But when you do, they make you smarter. They make you funnier. They make you better and, and really start reconnecting with some of those people. And it's not even an awkward thing. You can just be like, hey, I haven't seen you in two years. We've barely talked, but I think about you a lot. You're amazing. I just wanted to let you know. And they'll write you back and be like, oh my God, I think you're amazing too. And you're like, cool, let's go have coffee. You know, where are you living these days? I want to, you know, plan to drive to your town or, you know, if I happen to be there for work or whatever the thing is, or just get on a Zoom call and have a virtual coffee. You get coffee, I get coffee, we have coffee. But just like really reigniting that because I can promise you that they're feeling the same way too. We're all feeling sort of disconnected and lonely, even as we're reconnecting. And I think there's no lonelier place on earth than when you're in a room of people you don't want to be with. So let's like be more intentional about the rooms that we want to be with and the people, the rooms we want to be in and the people we want to be with.
1: Man, you're speaking my language. That intentional peace is so important. And it's about not picking people based on, on the external and based on society, based on the environment, but it's more aligned to that who you are inside and what like you say, what sets your what sets your heart alight, what makes you full of joy, what makes you feel like I might have been that long, but there's something about you that I just really relate to. Or I really want to just tap more into. And something as simple as just saying, I appreciate you. Like, it doesn't have to be elaborate, just simple. Like, we don't have to blur it up.
0: And honestly, it can be anybody. Three years ago, I spoke at a conference and I was the undercard to Malala. Like, Malala, Malala, right? There were five speakers. I was the second. Then there was the third, the fourth, and then Malala closed the show. And before she went on, I took a selfie with her backstage. I think she was like who the hell are you, right? But I like friended her on Facebook cuz I was like, okay, why not? Like we shared a stage. I'm just going to friend Malala and she accepted my friend request. And then a couple years later, she liked some posts that I put up, like a really like, you know, deep long post. And literally 6 months ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to really test this theory. So I in like the little friend messages, I sent her a message and I was like, "Hey, Apropos to nothing, I just wanted to let you know, I appreciate you and I think you're awesome and I'm grateful for all that you do in the world. And she wrote back, thank you so much and a little heart. And she wasn't like, you're awesome too. But like Malala wrote back to me. So like if Malala can write back to you, like she doesn't know who I am. She could not pick me out of a crowd of one. However, if Malala can write back, you can reach out to the the friend that you haven't seen in two years and not feel weird.
1: I love that. I need to go back to manifestation. I want to hear more about your, your take in manifestation.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's like the secrets, right? Like if you manifest, if you put on your vision board, all the opportunities will flow to you. No, that's not true. It's not true. What happens is that your brain takes in something like A bajillion bits of data every second. That's actually a scientific term, right? A bajillion bits of data. But it can only process like 17. So how does it know which ones to process? It knows which ones to process because you have told it which ones to process. So if you say the world is terrible, everything is bad. Your brain will process all the things that tell you the the world is terrible and everything is bad. But if you say to your brain, you put on your vision board, I want to go to Tokyo. Suddenly a bus will drive by that will have an airline sale to Japan. You didn't manifest an airline sale to Japan. Like, come on, who are we kidding? But what you did is you told your brain, notice that. That might have been an ad that's been running for three months and you never noticed it because you were so busy saying, oh, it's raining. Oh, I'm stuck in traffic. Oh, you know, I, my pants feel too tight. I, the pandemic, right? You're doing all the things that you told your brain to notice. So you didn't notice the bus driving by for three months telling you to go see the cherry blossoms. So we manifest things by telling our brain to actually notice opportunities that are already abounding all around us. And I think that's so cool. So we literally just have to say to our brain, I want this opportunity. I want to meet this person. I'd like to have more time for this, for that, for the other. And suddenly it starts to happen. Like I would have just scrolled past my friend on Facebook saying that they were speaking at this conference or that they were in this town. If I wasn't like, you know what? I am going to intentionally spend more time, but it caught my eye. I saw it and it registered and I did something about it. That's the difference. So that, again, it's that intentionality that I think is everything for all of us.
1: So it's down to the the RAS, the reticular activating system in your brain that kicks in when you start to manifest stuff. And that's what it leads to rather than secret and, and all those different
0: I mean, look, I love a good woo moment. I love a little witchy moment. I am the grand great grandchild of immigrant Russian, German, Eastern European mutt Jews. Like there is definitely gypsy blood like inside of me. Like there is absolutely like I can like sense Things are coming, you know, like like I I can tell my kids I'm like it's gonna snow in two days, like I can feel it. Like before the pandemic, I was like in the middle of February, I was like we should stock the freezer. Something's coming, and my kids are like, do you feel it in your knee? Like what's going on? Like they totally make fun of me. (laughs) I feel it in my knee. There's a pandemic coming. But I I I so I love a good woo moment. But I love even more when the woo is backed by science, and you're like, okay, I can manifest stuff. I do have agency. I do have the power. Like it's not just, oh, I wish I could travel more, but get really specific. I want to go to Japan. I want to see the cherry blossoms. If it's with work, like I'd like to have that opportunity. I want to be invited to the table. I want to get, you know, put on that project. And all of a sudden you'll like see an email about that project and there'll be an opportunity there to volunteer to do some extra work on it. And there you have it, right? We are so distracted by the things we tell our brain to look for that we don't tell our brain to look for the stuff we actually want. So the reason why vision boards work and manifestations work is cuz we are actually intentional speaking the words out loud and signaling to our brain to pick up on different cues and the ones that it's been in the habit of looking for.
1: Last two questions. I'm going to ask you before we wrap this up cuz I'm I'm so enjoying this but I also know that time time is going really really quickly. <laughs> Marathon running starting at 39. Just like, especially for someone who I think I read somewhere, you talked about how you hated P growing up. And yet.
0: Oh, I hated P. <laughs> I was a gym class zero. So, how did I become a gym class hero in your profession? Yeah. So I ran into a friend of mine one day when I was 39 years old. I wasn't fat. I wasn't thin. I wasn't weak. I wasn't strong. I was just kind of there. You know, I'd had a couple of kids. I'd birthed a couple of businesses. Like I was just like, everything was starting to hurt a little and I was tired. And I, you know, like I just, I don't know. I was just there. It was like midlife. and. I I saw her and she was 65 years old and she was like fit and strong and she had great posture and she radiated energy. And I was like, Ellen, who's the new man in your life? Because clearly there's a new man in your life. And she was like, well, there was a new man in my life. And his name is Mike, Coach Mike. And then Ellen proceeds, I was like, well, I got to get me some of that, right? So Ellen proceeds to drag me to this like dirty, dusty, dank community center and we do 45 minutes of calisthenics at like five in the morning. And at the end of the calisthenics, Coach Mike, quote unquote, invites you to the opportunity to run a mile. And it took me six weeks to run that very first mile of my life. Six full weeks before like literally leaning over and hurling. And once I got to the mile, I was so like hopped up on endorphins that I said, you know, if I string three of those together, I could do a 5K. And then I signed up for a 5K six weeks later, and then I got to the end of that one. And I say did a 5K, like not ran a 5K, because there were men with like double jogging prams, like passing me on the uphills. If I could have put my arm out and clothesline them, I probably would (laughs) have. But at the end of the 5K, I was like, if I string two of those together, I could do a 10K. And then at the end of that one, I was like, if I string two of those together, I could do a half marathon. I live in Boston, home to one of the major marathons in the world. So I was like, well, you know, what would be really cool So fast forward, and now I've run five marathons. Now, here's the thing. If you would have said to me, if you can dream it, you can do it. I never would have dreamed that, you know, those days that I was puking in that community center that I could run a marathon. But where does confidence come from? It doesn't come from dreaming big dreams. It comes from having competence, putting one foot in front of the other over and over and over until you do 5K and then 10K and then a half marathon and then a full marathon and then four more. You know, they say, if you can dream it, you can do it. And I'm like, no, you can do it. You can dream it. Which is why knowing that failure is not just a possibility, but a probability and that it's going to be okay, gets you out of that fear of like, well, can I do it? Can I not do it? I don't know. Maybe you can't, but the only way you can figure it out is to start doing it. And maybe it'll take you six full weeks to run that first mile, but you'll get there, right? You'll get there. So yeah, now I'm, you know, a marathon runner. As I told you, I just signed up for um, London for this fall and I row on a master's women competitive team. And suddenly I've like found this inner athlete, this layer of me that I didn't even know existed 12 years ago. And how neat is that? That just letting yourself not worry about being the worst at something allows you to figure out what you can be the best at.
1: It back to being limitless and recognizing there's so many layers to us. And the more we keep on uncovering those layers, the more we keep on discovering new things about ourselves and what we're capable of doing. And I guess my last question is how do you define leadership?
0: You know, that I'll go back to that executive director that I talked about in the beginning, the one that ran the White House office and asked me to do that project and then saw that I was a, an entrepreneur from the beginning. He was a very quiet man and he was introverted and he was very policy wonky and he wasn't, you know, he was probably five, nine. He wasn't a you know super tall guy. And he didn't walk into a room and, like, change the gravitational force of the room. He didn't have charisma. He didn't have that, like, shine, that thing that stars and celebrities have. And I had grown up thinking that leadership was the person in the lead, the one in the front, the one under the spotlight. And I learned from him Because what he was so good at was putting together a table of the smartest people and asking them all for their opinions and coming to consensus around ideas so that we all made each other better. And what I realized is that leadership can be from the front, but can also be from behind. It can be from the side. It can be quiet. It can be loud. It can be public. It can be private. That leadership really is when you bring the very best of who you are to a problem that matters to you and that you are authentic and you stand in your truth and in your excellence in that area and that you're not afraid to continue to grow and ask for help to continue to be more excellent at it is i think how i would define leadership
1: it's a really powerful definition that i really really like and it's interesting that I think about that. I think about the period we're in right now as well, with the changes happening, the way the world of work is operating. If we had more leaders like that, how much difference it would make, and how a lot of the great resignations of people moving on wouldn't be happening because that's, that's a missing piece.
0: Yes. Well, I will tell you <laughs> this is a whole other hour long conversation, but I just finished a three year research project about why people are leaving work. And we know that good leaders grow their people and, you know, people are happy working for good leaders. And we know that bad leaders bleed out people, right? Bad leaders are, it's toxic to work for them. But what I learned is that even people who report that they work for a quote unquote good leader will leave and feel just as unhappy if they don't have a relationship with that good leader. So for all of your leaders who are listening to this, if you are a bad leader, you got to fix that. But if you're a good leader, it doesn't matter unless you actually work to create good relationships with your people. So it's not enough for you just to be good. You've also got to share that and talk to them and interact and form those relationships because the relationships are what matters.
1: I can't wait to read your next book. When the hell can't wait to get your back and and delve into that because there are so many things that, that come to mind as you were talking about it and I'm sure some of this research you just touched on briefly is going to feed into that as well. But I just want to say, like, thank you for this, this conversation. It's like, oh, like I said, when we spoke a number of years ago, I'm like, Laura's, Laura, I really, really like you. Really, really vibe. That's the first conversation you just had. But I think it was just the realness and away from the, the woo-woo kind of stuff. and be like, no, let's let's just keep it real. We're going to fail, We're going to get back up. We're going to do things. There's stuff I like doing. There's stuff I don't like doing. There's a lot I've learned over my lifetime. I'm just willing to put it all out there and keep on stepping into that. And that's something that you keep on doing. And that, for me, that really, really, resonates.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, the truth of the matter is, is that I I am the very best at being me. I could try to be you, but I would suck at it. And you could try to be me, but you'd suck at it. So, like, we should just be us. And we're really, really good at it. So, like, stand in your center of excellence. Do what you know best. Be you authentic
1: the book limitless is available i put all the different links in the show notes as well as laura's website so you can tap more into her and if you want to get someone amazing to come and speak at your events, especially now the world is opening up you know where to go you know what you're gonna get you're gonna you're gonna get that that real truth hard hitting truth what's gonna get you moving and taking that real action so make sure you check out laura and i appreciate you for your time today
0: thank you so much it's
1: everyday leadership we'll see you next week